Well, it's good to see that people showed up after last week and the challenging topic of uh, the text last Lord's Day. When you preach on that subject, you never really know what the response might be. But to be quite honest, I found myself really encouraged by your responses, really encouraged by your your response as you've been communicating that to me of the security that you feel and you sense in the Lord because of his word. And that is deeply encouraging to me as you rest your heart in the sovereign hand of God and his goodness. And I want you to think more about that. I want you to think very carefully about how your heart is responding after that little biblical jet tour through the subject of God's choice in salvation. Were you one of those who found your heart flooded with humility and gratitude for God's choice? Was that your response? Or maybe you might have been someone who found your heart angered. Angered. Maybe blasted with disdain toward a God who chooses. Did you find your heart fearful and filled with doubt? Maybe about whether or not God has chosen you? All three of these are typical responses when this subject is raised, but the first one is actually the one that the Apostle Paul intended when he actually penned these words in verse 4, knowing Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. In the Bible, the terminology of election is always connected to the presence of eternal salvation, not to its absence. The intention of Paul bringing up God's choice is not to discourage you, it's not to create doubt in you, it's not to make you upset, it's to encourage you. It's to encourage God's people. To encourage God's people to do what? To press on, to hang on, not to quit. God has you because he has his saving eye on you and has had his saving eye on you from before the beginning of time. But you know, as I know, that when life circumstances swirl counterclockwise to our life and you feel like you're swimming against and not with the current of God's word, you see your sin, and you feel it, and you begin to experience some of its consequences, you begin to wonder, don't you? It probably comes into the mind of some people, you begin to wonder, if I don't feel that I'm moving with the Lord, has God really chosen me? Am I in the faith or not? Has God chosen I think that is likely the river in which the Thessalonian church was swimming in. Their world was against them. Their struggle with sin was still raging. And it was likely that in the severity of their difficulties and the temptation to swim with the current of the culture and find more affirmation than conflict And to live in what felt more immediately comfortable, even though it might have been immorally lustful and prideful and angry and frustrated or spent. 
that severity of circumstance was likely beginning to cause more doubts than actually build stability. And the apostle knows that. He has a pastoral heart. He knows that when the people swim against the current of the culture and adversity increases, people begin to struggle. Where's God in this? Am I in God because of what's going on around me? And I think that's why God brings up, or Paul brings up God's choice. That's why he brings it up. To encourage them in the battle, to preserve them from quitting the fight, and push them upward toward the God who actually saved them. That's why he writes this entire first portion that we've been studying so detailed, in such a detailed way. He's intentionally interceding for them in verse 2. He's intentionally reflecting on the activity that he knows is present in their salvation in verse 3. And he intentionally comprehends the truth about their salvation. Knowing, verse 4, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. It's so fascinating to me here that Paul does not question God's choice. He doesn't question it at all. It's not an enigma to him. He knows God's choice of them. Now, brethren, it's one thing to understand the theological fact that God chooses. And we we talked about that last week. We looked through the, the New Testament at the theological fact of God's election. And it's one thing to understand that. It is another thing to know with certainty that he has actually chosen you. Or, as Paul does here, to say of someone else, I know God has chosen you. And he tells them that. How in the world can Paul say this? How does Paul know that God has chosen them? I mean, it's not like what Spurgeon said. If it's possible, I could just lift up a man's suit coat to see if there's a little E on his back. I mean, how do you know? And how can he say this? He says, I know God's choice of you. And then he begins to tell them why. I know God's choice of you because I see your choices in him. And that's what he begins to unfold next. Not not that our choices determine God's choosing. God does not choose because he looked down the corridor of time and somehow foresaw that you would choose, therefore making his choice dependent on you. He's not dependent on anyone. For any reason. No. The reality is is that our choices begin to reveal God's. Persevering belief reveals saving election. Turning to God shows the selection of God. And why does Paul refer to God's election as a means of encouragement? Why, Why does he choose election? I could think of other things that would be less controversial. I could think of other theological truths that could be encouraging. Why election? Because this is the one that stirs the pot. Why choose something like this? Well, if you think about it carefully and you think about it biblically, there is nothing, dear friends, more solid than the eternal electing love of God. Remember, election is always the sign of his sovereign, specific, unfailing, loyal love. And if God has elected anyone, he will preserve them. 
He will save them in the end. He will, as we often sing, hold you fast. He will rescue you from his eventual wrath. You will not endure his anger because he has chosen. We can believe, actually, the doctrine of eternal security only if we believe in the doctrine of eternal election. They go together. And Paul wants you to be completely secure in your comprehending God's choice. How does he know this? How does he know this with such certainty to say it and for it to be written in something that we will read forever? Well, beginning in verse 5 all the way down to verse 10 is an explanation of how he knows that God has chosen them. This is how he knows. It's all about the evidence of God's sovereign choice that causes a deep spiritual gratitude in Paul for them. And what Paul does is he goes back to his original encounter with them. It's what we looked at a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 17 when we looked into that encounter that he had with this this city and these people. He preached the gospel first in the synagogue and then he went and he preached it to the rest of society and he saw a great movement of God and many people converted and he spent day and night with them for some time, maybe, maybe around three months, constantly exhorting, pleading, living with them, living among them. So he knew them well and they knew him well. And he goes back to that time. This is how he knows. So what is it then that convincingly shows God's choice? Well, that's what we're going to look at this week and next week. We're going to look at two evidences of God's sovereign choice that breeds spiritual gratitude. Two evidences of God's choice that breeds spiritual gratitude. What are those evidences? What are the evidences of God's election that bring up a gratitude in your heart for the work of God? That's what we want to talk about this week and next. So I was trying hard to get them both in this week, but it's just simply not going to happen. We're just going to get to one today and then the next one next week. First, the first evidence of God's sovereign choice that breeds spiritual gratitude is this, spiritually powerful proclamation. Spiritually powerful proclamation. This is really so fascinating to me when I I see what the apostle does here. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How do you know that? He says, I I know it because I, I know what kind of preacher I am. Now, wait a minute. You know what kind of preacher you are? Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember what kind of preacher I was when I was with you. And that's how I know that God has chosen. Well, that, that could be arrogant, couldn't it? But this is not arrogant. This is real. This is looking at the evidence. And he knows what he did when he brought the message to you. I know what kind of message. I know how it came to you. So one piece, and it's just one piece of this knowledge of God's choice is connected to Paul's preaching. And I know what kind of message you actually heard. 
And that's how I know that God chose. And listen, there's a lot of truth to this. Because friends, there's a lot of preaching going on in our world, right? There's a lot of preaching going on in our world. How do you know, how can you be certain that someone is truly in God? Well, you need to look at what they have heard. You need to look at those who preached it. And Paul starts right there. Spiritually powerful preaching is a fundamental evidence of God's saving grace. He begins with how the gospel actually came to them. God's choice of you is evident in how the gospel came to you through spiritually powerful preaching. Not culturally, socially persuasive communication, because cultural and social persuasion and communication, that was prevalent in Paul's day. There were professional philosophers that were living in most of these cities, especially a city like Thessalonica, the capital city of the region. There would have been professional philosophers who were skilled, trained, professionally trained in the ability to persuasively bring an argument. They made a living off of it. They gained disciples off of it. In fact, a disciple of a philosopher would memorize everything that that philosopher would teach. They would follow him wherever he went. That was true in both Jewish culture with the rabbis and secular culture with the philosophers. They would memorize the philosophy and the the theory and they would think about it and they would live with this man so they could see these things in his life. And so, listen, we need to be honest. There is cultural and social kinds of proclamation that are very influential. We all know that. Always astounds me why the world pays attention to what a comedian thinks about world events. I mean, why, why, why do late night comedians make the news? I mean, who cares? Right? Who cares what a comedian, they're there to make me laugh, not to inform me on what to think about political theory. But, but they have great influence, don't they? They have incredible influence and people follow them and they listen to them and they mimic what they say. Same thing is true about a politician. Every time that we find an election year coming, we're going to probably elect the most charismatic of the politicians. Most of the time. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not, the, the culture's not voting over which philosophy sounds best in terms of objective criteria. That's not really how it works. We listen to politicians for the slick way in which they present themselves or not present themselves. You can let one guy burn himself out and maybe you can win the election by keeping your mouth closed. It's really clever. It's really interesting to see how it works and they have incredible influence over culture. I'm always astounded when a politician says something about scripture and the whole world starts to say, listen to what they said about the Bible. Who cares? But they're very influential and they have effect. But what is present in social and cultural influence that's not present, that that they don't have, that Paul does have, is one singular element. You know what that is? The Holy Spirit. 
So the world can actually be moved by clever speaking. It is moved. It is moved by people who present their arguments well. But how do you know, how do you know when this is the work of God? It has to have the spirit of God. And that's what Paul brings out here. In verse 5, he speaks of how our gospel did not come to you and how it did come to you. How did it come? So Paul actually brings out here three elements that I think are essential to spiritually powerful preaching. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Just three different elements in spiritually powerful preaching. How would we know that the preaching that we're hearing is not just some kind of social influence, cultural influence, but it's actually spiritually powerful? How do you know that? Because even in the realm of church, preachers are given to effective communication. And effective preachers know how to communicate using good skill and ability. And they think about it and they practice it. But what makes it spiritually powerful? That's really what we're interested in. Well, let me walk through these three essential elements and and just talk through them with you this morning so that you have kind of a grid and you can think through this grid, hopefully in a helpful way, as you examine even what you're hearing on a regular basis. Whatever you hear from this pulpit or any pulpit, First, I would say one essential element in spiritually powerful preaching is scriptural exposition. Scriptural exposition. You say, ah, well, that's because you like exposition. You use that word a lot, and so you, you threw it onto this verse somewhere. No, I think it's actually here. I think it's actually here. Paul actually assumes it, and he camps on it actually many times in this letter. Look carefully at verse 5. Here's how I know God's choice of you. Because, that's what the little word for means, because our gospel, now that's very important, our gospel, meaning our message, our message when we came to you, what we preached, our gospel did not come to you in word only. What does that mean? How did it come to them? It did come to them in word, but not only in word. So yes, there is more than what is preached, but it is not less than what is preached. What is preached? Our gospel came to you in word. Not only word, but it did come to you in word. And I think he means by that the spoken word, the public proclamation of the gospel, the message of Jesus as it's revealed in the Old Testament and the, at this time when he's speaking it, the unveiling of the new covenant and the new message and how it completes everything in the Old Testament. Now I I see it, I recognize he's saying not in word only, but before you leave it too quickly, make sure you see what is in his preaching. It is the spoken word. He's not saying here it was an experience only. No, it's both in what is said and what is experienced. So verse five, he's gonna talk about what was preached and how it was preached. And then in verses six through 10, he's gonna talk about how they experienced it and how they responded to it. But he did bring it in word. In fact, he mentions our gospel, which means our preaching. But also notice 
how often he brings this idea up. Look at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded from you. What is that? The message about Christ, the preached message of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to do what? Speak to you the gospel of God. What does he mean? I'm preaching to you the scriptures. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Our exhortation, our speaking to you, our preaching to you. That's what exhortation does not come from error. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that's the message, so we what? We speak. We speak to you. We publicly declare to you the gospel. Look at verse 5. For we never came with what kind of speech? Flattering speech. So we are speaking. We are speaking. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. There's the preached message again. It wasn't just the preached message, but our own soul. It was both. But it was, was certainly the gospel, the preached message. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. What did we do? We proclaimed, we spoke, we taught, we preached. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting, that's public proclamation, and encouraging and imploring, that's his preaching. It's his preaching. Look at verse 13. For this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received what? The word of God. What is that? That's the word, the message of God that was preached to you. You received the word which you heard from us and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work. So we brought the word to you, we preached the word, we exhorted, we implored, we pled, we made it known publicly. Verse 16, there were enemies who were hindering us from, notice it again, speaking, speaking. Paul was driven by speaking, preaching, teaching, exhorting the word of God, the gospel of God, the scriptures that reveal the message of salvation and sanctification in Jesus. Why? Why was he so driven to public proclamation of the Bible? Because he knows the truth. It is the word of God that actually creates spiritual life. The word creates spiritual life. Friends, this is so essential that you get this. Spiritual life. You becoming a Christian, you staying a Christian, you growing as a Christian is not begun, maintained, or completed by social kinds of persuasion. It is only by understanding the truth of the scripture. For example, jot down 1 Peter 1. It's just a reminder, 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, just listen to it. For you have been born again. What causes you to be born again? What causes you to become a Christian? You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, not temporary kinds of seed, but imperishable. That is, the, that through the living and enduring word of God, the scripture causes you to be born again. 
because all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord, which is a synonym for the Bible, the scriptures, the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you, publicly proclaimed to you. You don't become a Christian simply because somebody used the Bible and had a persuasive argument. You become a Christian when you actually hear the word and understand it. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord, a synonym for the scriptures, is perfect. And what does that perfect law do? Restores the soul, or in some versions you'll read, converts the soul. What does the word do? It converts the soul. It restores it. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it makes the wise, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, and what do they do? Rejoice the heart. By the way, rejoicing the heart is just a synonym for salvation. Salvation is the heart being satisfied in God. It rejoices the heart. What brings that about? It's not clever speech. It's not social interaction. It's not social influence. It's not cultural ability. It is actually the scriptures that enliven the heart, rejoice it and satisfy the heart before God. The commandment of the Lord is pure and it enlightens the eyes. You can actually see things the way they are when you see them the way the Bible describes them. The scripture gives life, not the preacher. The Bible. Spiritually powerful preaching does contain more than just an explanation of scripture, but it is never less than an explanation of scripture. And by the way, that's what we mean by exposition. Exposition doesn't mean you're exposing people to the Bible. Exposition means you are explaining the meaning of the Bible. When you know the meaning of the Bible, you are knowing what God intends for you to understand about your life, the world around you, your heart, other people, and what it means to be a Christian. That's why it is so critical for us to make sure that we're understanding Scripture the way God intended us to understand all of it. Not just taking a passage, and we we can't just say exposition is going through a book of the Bible. You can go through a book of the Bible and impose an idea on it. But what we have to do is expose the meaning, the actual meaning of the text as the writer intended it to be understood, just like when you write a letter, you don't mean for somebody to read their own interest into it, their own meaning into it, their surrounding meaning into it. You you want them to understand what you meant when you write the letter. So does God. So he gave them the word. The word, because the word creates life. In the end, it's the scriptures that convert, not the creative presentation of the scripture by the preacher. It's just the word. And making sure that you understand what it means. Paul said when he went to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you brethren I did not come with superiority of speech. And he means by that I didn't come with all of the the training that comes with the political and the professional philosophers. I didn't have any of that. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I didn't have cultural wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God because I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the message of the Bible. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. By the way, those are not marks that we normally vote for, for public officials. Weakness, fear, and in much trembling? Nah, not a leader. But that's how I came. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And here's the critical issue, isn't it? Whatever you win them with, you have to keep them with. If you explain the Bible and the responses to the Bible, it is the Bible that sustains and keeps Use something else, and you'll have to keep using it. Exposition, public explanation. If what we desire is spiritual conversion, what is required is an accurate understanding of the Spirit's word. That's the scriptures. What's not helpful is clever uses of the scripture that end up making the speaker the one that we're enamored with. Or the show that he oversees. An organization, a crowd, those can be gained and they can be grown by using the Bible to achieve sizable social influence. We've likely seen that kind of thing. But that doesn't guarantee spiritual transformation. People must understand the word as it is given. That is exposition. That's what Paul was doing I came and I gave you the word. And he says it over and over and over in this book. I preached, I proclaimed, I implored, I explained. Spiritually powerful proclamation has to be defined and driven by an accurate understanding of the scriptures. But not only an accurate understanding of the scriptures. There's something else. Because he does say, not only in word, right? So what's the second essential element of spiritually powerful preaching? Second, it is spiritual power. You have to have scriptural exposition, explanation. You have to have that. But it needs to be coupled with spiritual power. And I say spiritual power because inward transformation is not achieved merely by intellectual comprehension. You're not transformed just because you, you understand something. There's lots of people who can understand things correctly. For example, I have in my library, I have commentaries, lots of commentaries. Most of my library is commentaries on books of the Bible. And I can pull off a book. I remember this so vividly. I was preaching through the book of Revelation a long time ago. And I, I would pull off a particular book. And it is a marvelous explanation of the details of the Greek text of the book of Revelation. And I remember studying in chapter four and five of Revelation, which is that incredible and beautiful and astounding display of the throne of God and the lamb who who John did not see, who seemed to be absent until he gets a fresh view and he sees the lamb and the entirety of the creation erupts in praise of the lamb of God. And I remember reading through this exquisite, great detailed description of the Greek text and the writer was virtually unmoved by chapter four and five and I thought how are you unmoved he even made a statement like here's what it means but we're not really sure what God what John intends by this you're not (laughs) 
Why aren't you on your face in front of God? Why aren't you astounded with what the Lamb of God has done and what he's going to do to bring all things together? You're not astounded? That's somebody who can know that two plus two equals four, but he just isn't astounded with God because of it. Oh, you, you know that two plus two equals four, but aren't you amazed with such order by the hand of God? What awakens you to that? The Spirit. Well, where do you see that in this text? Well, you see it in the phrase. It's not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's spiritual power. All of that. Power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what spiritual power is. Now, at first glance, it's difficult to know precisely what Paul means by this phrase. Does he mean that his preaching was accompanied by miracles? Because sometimes the word power, dunamis in Greek, from where we get the word dynamite. But you you don't always think of the word dunamis in Greek as explosive power. That's an English rendition of the word. The word dunamis can mean miraculous power at times in how it's used. But most of the time when it's used, it means ability, capability. That's what it means most of the time. Some would say, and some have said, that this means that when Paul came and preached, it wasn't just by word only, but he also had miracles that were accompanying his preaching. And you know what? I think he probably did. This letter is very early in his ministry. And we have evidence throughout the New Testament that apostles like the Apostle Paul, when they were preaching and they were unveiling what had not been completely understood or known, that is how Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament and how the New Covenant has come, not all of that was understood clearly. The prophets and the apostles were revealing that in the New Testament era and there were miracles that would accompany their preaching. For example... 1 Corinthians 1, 22 reminds us that the Jews sought for signs. They looked for such signs. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, here's what the Apostle Paul says. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, powers, miraculous powers. Those were signs that showed him to be an apostle that said he was revealing accurately the new revelation, the new covenant mystery. There are other such verses. You can see some in the second chapter of Hebrews, Galatians. There were signs and wonders that accompanied the apostle. However, when Paul typically refers to signs and wonders, he uses the plural form of the word dunamis, not the singular, and it's here he uses the singular. That doesn't mean there weren't signs. I'm sure there were. But I don't think that's what he's referring to in this statement because he doesn't use the plural form, which normally means miracles. He uses a singular, which might mean that he's referring to some kind of spiritual ability. And it's not... And it's an ability that accompanies his preaching because that's what he's talking about. My preaching was not just in the spoken word, but in a certain kind of ability. So how do we know what he means here? Well, if you remember, if you were with us when we introduced this book, I I made mention to the fact that in these verses, especially chapter 1, chapter 1 is kind of like an outline for the next two chapters, 
And Paul actually alludes here to things that he's going to unpack later in chapters 2 and 3. So he goes back and forth between his ministry among them and their response to him. Just like he does here, verse 5, his ministry among them, verses 6 to 10, their response to him. He's going to do the same thing, but in greater detail in chapters 2 and 3. So just like I showed you what he meant by word, he meant the spoken word, and I just walked you through chapters two, chapter 2 to show you what he means by the word, the spoken word. He does the same thing with power. What does he mean by power? Well, we don't have to wonder about that. He actually unveils that and gives greater detail to that later in chapter 2. So what does he mean by power? And we could really say that about all three of these, power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. These are all explained further as you keep reading in chapter 2 and even in chapter 3, but we'll focus some attention in chapter 2. So what does he mean by power here? Dunamis, ability. Well, look at chapter 2, verse 3. Here he explains his preaching, his exhortation, in a negative way, what it is not. Our exhortation does not come from error, impurity, or by way of deceit. Now, what is he referring to there? Not just the content of what he's saying, but the ability and the effect of what he's saying is not from error, it's not from impurity, it's not by way of deceit. This is a negative description of Paul's ability and what his ability and his power was not fueled by. It was not fueled by error, impurity, or deceit. That's not spiritual power. That's not spiritual ability. And if you you took the reverse of that, you would say, this is accuracy, purity, and authenticity. That is what breeds spiritual power. Not error, impurity, or deceit, but accuracy, purity, authenticity in relation to the presentation of the scripture. That's power. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Another description of Paul's ability in preaching. We did not seek glory from men, that's not what we were after, either from you or others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority. There's his power. He does have apostolic authority, doesn't he? That's power. But he didn't use it here. He didn't use that. We weren't seeking glory from men, from you or others, as though even though as apostles we had it, but verse 7, we proved to be gentle among you. Here's his ability. How about this? Here's real spiritual ability, gentleness. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. His ability was not seeking praise from people. He was seeking the glory of God and so he proved to be gentle. So many people look at leadership and they think, you know what leadership, it's the exercise of authority. You know a bad leader? One who's always trying to get you to obey his authority. Recognize his authority. He came and he said, listen, my ability's not in my authority. It's in my gentleness. My patience. My tenderness. My care. I see you. You're, you're like new babes and I want to care for you carefully. Genuine spiritual ability in preaching has less to do with communication style and public performance and more with how the preacher communicates the actual truth of Scripture accurately with no personal interest other than the spiritual benefit of those who are hearing him. 
It's marked by personal humility and tenderness, not personal authority over those to whom he preaches. That's real power, ability. What does he mean by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit? Well, if I look into chapter 2, it's very interesting. Paul doesn't mention by name the Holy Spirit, but he alludes to the Spirit in reference to how he sees himself preaching in front of God. It's really fascinating. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Now, if I was to stop and say, let's, let's talk about that a minute. In the Trinity, who is it that is examining our hearts? It's the Spirit. In front of whom are we actually preaching? The ever-present Spirit. It's as if he's alluding to the fact that he's preaching as if the Spirit of God has approved his message. And he knows that as he's preaching, the Spirit is examining his heart as to whether what his heart is matches his message. Who's examining the heart? God, the Holy Spirit. It's not just there though. Look at verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech. I didn't just come to convince you through natural persuasion, flattering speech, as you know. I didn't come with a pretext for greed. I'm not trying to get something out of you. And who does he appeal to? God is witness. How do you think God was a witness of that? By the presence of the abiding spirit as he's preaching. He's saying, I have a certain kind of ability that doesn't come from my raw authority. It comes from a tenderness as I explain the scripture to you publicly. And I'm coming to you as if I am preaching in front of the spirit who examines my heart and is examining everything about my ministry. I am swamped, as it were, submerged as it is in the presence of the spirit when I'm preaching to you. I'm totally accountable to God. We can too easily think that the presence of the Holy Spirit is always represented by something spontaneous, mysterious, miraculous, ecstatic. Is that how you think about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes, it's like a buzz. Something ecstatic's about to happen. But what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5? It's, it's very non-ecstatic. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the evidence of the Spirit, right? That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Preaching as if you are directly accountable to God who is present through his spirit affirming your word. Honesty in your preaching as if God the Holy Spirit is the witness is actually the sign of the spirit in preaching. Passionate emotions, excitable presentation, charismatic expressions are not necessarily the evidences of the spirit. But we too often assume they are. Jesus 
pointed at a number of people who had charismatic expressions in Matthew chapter 7. And they did miracles and they prophesied in his name. And he said to them, I never knew you. The preacher must preach as if God is present. I was reading through a book by Joel Beakey. He referred to the great preacher in London, England, England during World War II and just beyond, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones and what he thought about the work of the Spirit in preaching. He said, the Holy Spirit is at work. The preacher feels a holy compulsion and the people are gripped and fixed by the truth. And this is a far cry from preaching only because it is the Lord's day or it is your job. It is a labor of love. Love moves us to study and to organize our thoughts. Lloyd-Jones says that to dress up our sermons simply to attract people is not love but prostitution. Preaching is delivering a word from God, not in the sense of a direct revelation, but as the result of studying the scripture and then speaking the truth of the scripture in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The preacher is an agent of God and he himself is taken up by God into this realm of the spirit and God is giving a message through this man to the people. And as a result, the preacher may say, I am preaching, yet not I, but I am being used of God. I'm being taken up. I'm being employed. And God is using, using even me to speak to these people. I am an ambassador for God. I am a sent one. I am aware of this great responsibility. But it is all right. I am enabled to do it because of his grace and the power that he is gracious enough to give me. That's preaching in the spirit. There's a third phrase that talks about spiritual power here, and it's the phrase, with full conviction. With full conviction. And some suggest that this simply means an internal compulsion. The the preacher is just internally moved, and, and we can all talk about a preacher who's fired up. And he's really moved by what he says. I mean, if the preacher believes it's true, and he says it like it's true, you're like, yeah, it's gotta be true. I think it's more than that, though. I I hope that a preacher preaches with an internal compulsion, and I hope there is some conviction there, but I think there's more. The word for conviction here, and especially this, this much more intensified use of it, full conviction, is also mentioned several times in the New Testament. Let me just give you one, and it's, it's translated in the New American Standard usually as assurance. Assurance. Colossians 2 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. That's how Paul is, is preaching and arguing and persuading so that hearts were, would be encouraged, knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance, complete, complete assurance that comes from understanding. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Full assurance that comes from faith. This is a complete assurance that comes from a strong comprehension of the truth. Now what does Paul mean by that here? When I came to you, I came with such 
knowledge of the truth that I'm completely filled with a, an assurance that it is the word of God. How do we know what he means by that? Well, again, we go back to chapter 2, and he actually explains it. Verse 2. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had, notice this phrase, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Well, what is that? That is, I am more persuaded that this message is what you need because it is the scriptures, it is the word of God that I'm willing to risk my entire life for you to give it to you. I think, this is, this is Paul saying to the church, I think it's more dangerous for your soul not to hear this than for me to preach it and lose my life. Now, if your life is really on the line for saying something, preaching the message of God, and there are people who are actually going to take you out, as they were with Paul, they were trying to kill him, and he knows that, and he still stands up in a synagogue or in a public setting, and he says, this is what God says. I know it goes against the grain of everything you believe. I know I'm saying Caesar's not Lord, and I could be killed for that. I know I'm telling you that all of the gods that you worship in this world are not gods at all. And there's one true God, and he has shown himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that could put his life on the line. He's so convinced of that truth, he's willing to boldly put it all out there and risk his life for it. He knows it's not a lie, it's the truth. And it's more dangerous for you not to hear it than for him to preach it and lose his life. That's full conviction, that's complete assurance. And it's rooted in the message, not just the assurance of the messenger. In chapter 2, verse 8, look at that opening phrase there, having so fond an affection for you. What drove him? I am compelled by such love for you. What do you do then? that I impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become so dear to us. That's full conviction. I have such affection for you. I have such love for you that I will labor and give up my life, not just my public speaking ministry, but my life to invest in you. That's full conviction. It's a conviction that leads to an earnestness a seriousness of the message that drives an earnestness in the preacher so that the listener would come face to face with God. John Piper wrote about this. This is simply stupendous to think about that when I preach, the everlasting destiny of sinners hangs in the balance. If a person is not made earnest and grave by this fact, people will unconsciously learn that the realities of heaven and hell are not serious. You ever heard a preacher who doesn't preach as if the Bible is dead serious with, as Piper says, blood earnestness? If we don't preach with full conviction, people don't listen as if this is important. He goes on to say, I can't help but think that this is what's being communicated by the casual cleverness that comes from so many pulpits. 
John Henry Jowett said, we never reach the innermost room in any man's soul by the expediences of the showman or the buffoon. Piper says, laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of many preachers. Laughter means people feel good. It means they like you. It means you have moved them. It means you have some measure of power. It seems to have all the marks of successful communication. If the depth of sin and the holiness of God and the danger of hell and need for broken hearts is left out of account. I've been literally amazed, he says, at conferences where preachers mention the need for revival then proceed to cultivate an atmosphere in which it could never come. I think that's what Paul is saying here. When I came, I came with a kind of ability that produces spiritual fruit, a kind of ability that's rooted in the presence of the Spirit And he's in front of me examining my heart and with full conviction in what I'm saying because I know how serious this is for you. That's what power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction means. That's true spiritual power. Accurate presentation of the word with no personal interest beyond the spiritual benefit of those to whom you preach. Preaching as if God the Holy Spirit is your accountability and present as you speak with complete confidence in the ability of the word that gives you a boldness to present it, even in the face of opposition. We're in a fascinating season of life. We are. And we're actually witnessing the softening of scripture publicly. We're actually seeing it. Because it is going to have more and more controversial consequences. It really will. I was talking with a pastor uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Dalton and I were. And he's in his early 60s and he was talking about uh, retirement is not far. And he says, you know, I used to think that uh, I really had it in my mind that pretty soon retirement would come and I'm just going to get to go and play with my grandkids. He said, but for the first time in my entire life in ministry, I'm actually, I can't imagine that I'm not going to actually spend jail time before I die. He said, it's, it's hard to imagine that I won't if I keep saying what the Bible says. Well, if you have spiritual power, that is an ability connected to spiritual fruit, the spirit is your accountability full conviction in the message so that you are bold to preach it no matter what the consequences. That's what you're looking for. And if you had someone preaching like that, that's a sign of God's election. But that's not the last. There's one more essential element in spiritually powerful preaching. We'll touch on it now. It's personal integrity. Personal integrity. You see how he ends? In verse 5, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I mean, Paul knew what kind of preaching he was giving. He was giving the word. He was giving it spiritually powerful in a powerful demonstration. But they knew it too because they knew Paul. They knew it. They knew him. It gave evidence to the electing grace of God in Paul's preaching because He knew what kind of message and how he was bringing it. 
And they knew him. And he was a man of personal integrity. He was displaying a life that was in line with what he was preaching. Now, I I don't think that Paul was sinless. I think he likely made mistakes and he transgressed the word of God. But not so much so that it became the characteristic of his life. He preached in a way that was in line and he lived in such a way that was in line with what is preaching. What happens when a preacher falls into public sin? He's forced to step away from the ministry because of it. What happens to the people? They start doubting. They start doubting the message. They start doubting what they believe because they heard it from that guy. Has God really chosen? If I believe that and it wasn't transformative at all, is this really a true message? Is this really God? But you look at how open, you look at how involved, you look at how invested Paul was with the congregation. They knew him personally. They knew him thoroughly. They knew him well enough, close enough to see how the truth that he preached is defining his interaction. He immersed himself in the life of his local church. I read a significant article yesterday morning about a public evangelical father and son who wielded incredible political, cultural influence in their day. The father's now deceased. The son is now a failed leader, removed from his position because of long-term sexual impurity, less than above-board financial dealings. And in the interview with this son, the author of the article, I'm, I'm sure, doesn't understand a lot of what they're saying and writing about, but the son started describing the father's life at home. None of us would have known what was going on in the home because it was all kind of kept closed, but the face was all over the TV. He would say, yeah, dad Dad immersed himself in ministry because he couldn't stand to be home with mom. In fact, mom was so tight on, on her convictions that dad couldn't even get a drink, so he would start drinking NyQuil and called it Baptist wine. We laugh, but that's a life that's not in line with the message. And it cultivated a heart in his son who just thought it was all about the public performance and he would even identify himself as not really religious. He doesn't have anything for the church. He believes in Jesus but has nothing for organized religion. The son was caught in all kinds of escapades and and you're thinking, oh, I got to know who that is. No, you don't. What you need to know is that that kind of lifestyle that's lived in public like that for the public, for the public to see, rather than just a quiet, careful life lived out with a local church and a preacher and his Bible and his church, that kind of life is dangerous. That kind of wanting to be in the limelight, wanting all the public recognition, wanting to have cultural influence and societal influence is poisonous. Better to do what Paul says. You, you know what I was like. I just lived with you day and night, day and night. I mean, you, you knew me. You knew me. He, he'll expand on that in chapter 2. Verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor, hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. 
we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You're witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. You know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. That's how we lived with you. Simple, obscure, just giving you the Bible. Preachers need to be satisfied with being known by their church and no one else. It doesn't matter. Maybe if the Lord gives you a greater voice, he does, and there's a greater accountability that comes with that. I think personal obscurity in cultural terms in society, personal obscurity is bliss. So, Paul says, I came to you with spiritually powerful preaching. That's how I know God chose. Because I, I, I know the ability that went into that. I know the spirit was in that. I know what kind of message this was. It was, it was full conviction in my heart to put my life on the line. And you know what kind of man I was. I, have, I lived this message out with you. It's a part of me and it's a part of you. And that's a sign that God has chosen you. So don't quit. Look at the message that was brought to you. It's God's word. It's the scriptures. We don't have anything else to say. We don't have anything else to live by. It's just the Bible. That's it. And that's how you know, but that's not the only way. There's another way you know that God has chosen, but you've got to come back again next week to get that. And that's the response. So Paul says, I I know God chose you because I chose to preach only the Bible to you in spiritual power and in personal integrity. And that's the sign that God is present. That's a sign that God is present. Everything in the culture is against a preacher preaching that way. Everything in culture will reward a preacher who will compromise these things. But where these are found consistently you are finding the activity of God. And that should encourage you that what you're hearing then is God's sovereign word to your heart. That's a piece of it. Let's pray together. Father, we we pray that you would help us now to preach this is is to bring even greater scrutiny but perhaps it is to bring deeper fellowship as well. And I pray and I expect, Lord, that in this congregation you would drive us to expect that it will be the Bible and the Bible alone that we tie ourselves to when it comes to the time of preaching the scriptures. When we're explaining the gospel to our coworkers and neighbors family members, I pray it's the Bible that we run to and not, not to clever arguments and not to other kinds of convincing ways to try to get people to choose Christ. It's passionately, clearly, accurately explaining the scripture and living according to it and trusting in that message, trusting you that you will convert through that message. Give us boldness in that. Not to worry about the world around us and what the consequences might be. We know the the word is more powerful than that. The word can reach beyond 
anything that we could imagine. It can go beyond, even if we're put in a jail cell, the word can convert souls. And we, we pray that we would see that kind of spiritual power. And God, keep us a people of integrity who live according to your word. Yes, I know we, we all have our weaknesses and our weaknesses can be so debilitating, but I pray that you would raise up a congregation here that so supports each other in their walk with Christ that they're encouraging and imploring and walking next to each other. Even those who are their elders and their leaders in the church so that none of us would fall pray to sin. God help us to do this in true spiritual power, in real personal integrity as we explain the Bible carefully and constantly. We pray for this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.